Welcome to another Heal Me Too podcast extra. This is Hope Singson, the artist, creativity researcher, activist, and founder of the hashtag Heal Me Too Festival and podcast. And this extra contains a recording of a talk I gave at a conference last year about some of my own research. If you've listened to a couple other episodes, you may have noticed I keep asking what happens in the brain and body during trauma and while healing, and especially the ways that creativity may help. Why it is that watching a live performance like My Play Skin may help an audience to heal even just a bit. Last fall, I attended the annual conference of the Alliance for the Arts at Research Universities, also known as A2RU. I gave a talk on a panel that explored questions like that in detail. You can read the text of my talk on my blog at skintheplay.com blog. If you're just a bit curious about the ways art impacts on us and among the members of an audience, I hope you might enjoy it. Hi, it's, it's really nice to see a lot of familiar faces uh, from the show yesterday. Um, I, I should mention that I'm recording myself, which will not come as a, as a surprise to anybody who saw the show yesterday. Although my reasons are different today, I'm actually starting a podcast called the Hashtag Heal Me Too podcast um, to explore modalities of healing, including creativity. So anyway, shameless self-promotion check. Um, as an artist, I think of my mission as expanding those impossible moments when injustice and heartache find grace. As a researcher, I've been on a 30-year quest to understand the mechanisms of action within creativity that may transform us. When I heard that this conference would be discussing the theme of arts environments, design, resilience, and sustainability, I thought that performing skin could create an arts environment on the spot that might provoke conversation about the special role of live participants in every artistic environment and exchange. Research in neuroscience keeps revealing ways that our brains and bodies filter and even design the experiences we have through selective attention and memory and in the ways we perceive and even prefer certain stimuli. Singer-songwriter Paul Simon recently summed this up, or one consequence of this. Uh, He credited listeners as the ultimate authors of his songs in the ways that we rewrite melodies and substitute words in the car or the shower. He said, how they hear it, that's what the song is to them. Yet even as we co-author an experience, the experience co-authors us. For me, this neurophysical dynamic between us and the world validates the work of philosopher Merleau-Ponty, especially his ideas of reciprocity and entwining. Ponty recognized that just as one hand cannot touch another without itself being touched, the individual only knows her existence in ways that are entwined with the world. Through this neurophenomenological lens, I see every aesthetic encounter as having the structure of a nerve synapse with a sender, a receiver, and a magical gap in between where their neurophysical handshake begins. The sender and receiver overlap and get tangled up in the in-between. As you may know, back in the 80s and 90s, neuroscientists discovered we have these amazing quote-unquote mirror neurons. Uh, They're also called empathy neurons. Mirror neurons give us a direct experience of everything happening outside of us. Right now, 
Watching me, your mirror neurons make you feel like you are speaking, smiling, and putting your hand on your head. It's a nonstop game of Simon Says. Um, mirror neurons are thought to help inform our theory of mind, to help us guess why the world behaves the way it does and what it might do next so we can predict dangers and opportunities that may be coming. Our mirror neurons make us soak up the world. Others' experiences literally become, in a small way, ours. The outer world is part of ourselves. I think art is a laboratory where we enjoy experimenting with this overlapping in between. Art invites a special kind of contact with the world that's especially effective at reauthoring us. And yesterday, some of us overlapped at my performance of Skin. The play tells the story of a woman, let's just say me, uh, who uses creative practice to renegotiate the effects of sexual violence. She dives into a variety of media as an artist and audience. She's an obsessive reader of Virginia Woolf. She's a struggling songwriter and poet. She's a struggling academic writing her dissertation and performing her classroom lectures. She's also struggling with intimacy and even tries using sex itself as an aesthetic practice. Dramaturgically, skin is constructed to hopefully build up a charge that will ignite that synapse between me and the audience, you, to provoke a real-time transformational exchange. Skin is especially likely to do this for survivors of contact sexual violence, which the CDC says is one in three women and one in six men. But since the play is ultimately about resilience and vulnerability, it can send off sparks for anyone processing the big and little t traumas of life. Yesterday, many of you generously completed surveys uh, after the show to help me learn more about the ways I hope skin works to kindle transformation and even healing. So uh, let's outline some of these hypotheses and a few early findings. I should start by talking about danger and safety. Skin uses a few of the dramatist's tools that evoke a sense of danger and many that create safety. First, there's the content. Trigger warnings are only a thing because discussing sexual violence signals danger. There's also some disturbing music and a loud jarring noise that happens a few times in the show. There's a movement section that may disturb and there's the fact that the audience can't hide in most uh, presentations of skin, the setup isn't quite like yesterday. Normally, the audience is lit by a low, warm glow instead of the same bright lights as me. Um, we can all see each other, but you have a little more cover. <laughs> uh, but as for tools that engender safety, the instrumental and sung music in skin is mostly soothing or upbeat. There's a lot of jokes with a sprinkling of goofball comedy and clowning. And the tone and the rhythm of the piece are quiet and regular. I also use a mode of direct address that seeks an actual response. It's designed to continually, even explicitly, sometimes reassure. However, I suspect direct address and eye contact is also sometimes dangerous, uh, depending on what I'm doing. Yesterday, half of respondents said they felt uneasy at some point during skin. Almost 40% also felt anxious. A little more than one in four felt triggered at some point. Uh, one reported a panic attack. At the end of the play, however, uh, most people, including those who felt triggered or had a panic attack, reported feeling relief, 
and or hope, comfort, safety, community, closeness, almost 40% even felt fondness or love. When you're trying to spark transformation and healing, engendering safety and connection is both a means and an end. Feeling safe yet alert, even a, a bit nervous, is the ideal neurophysical psychological state for learning something new. This is especially true for anyone who has experienced trauma because of the ways trauma alters the brain, which I'll go over in a moment. A grounding in safety also helps you explore traumatic material without getting overwhelmed by fear. In an early draft of my play, one survivor told me that she'd had a panic attack during a section that made her sit for too long in a frightening place. She said the panic attack continued to the end of the play. In a later draft, another survivor had a panic attack late in the show, and whether due to her own resilience or changes in the play uh, by that point, this woman was able to come back and found relief in the final moments that made her eager to see the show again. Actually, even the first survivor came back repeatedly for the express purpose of practicing resilience. There's a circular repetitive structure in skin which I hope practices resilience, takes us again and again from safety to danger and back. Uh, in therapeutic practice, this pattern is called pendulating. It can help you desensitize traumatic content through repeated brief exposures. In operant conditioning, which I've used myself to train a fearful dog, you expose the subject to triggers that aren't too intense. You want to keep them, quote, sub-threshold, below a level of arousal that would be too negative to keep learning. It would reinforce the fear instead of expanding tolerance. Every time we return from fear to a state of calm, our brains actually grow neural fibers called dendrites. These connections make it easier to calm ourselves the next time we get distressed. Repetition literally builds resilience. To dig into this a little more, I'm, I'm going to summarize the neurobiology of trauma in a kind of unscientific way, um, but giving credit to trauma researcher Basil van der Kolk, therapist and author Louis Cozzolino, and neuroplasticity researcher Norman Doidge. Let's think of the brain as an orchestra. When the brain is well-regulated, all the sections play in sync. The signals between areas are efficient and effective. Players can call and respond. Trauma dysregulates the brain. Instruments get drowned out or just stop playing. There's a lot of static. The signal-to-noise ratio is inefficient. The connections are less effective. After trauma, threats start to seem more severe than they actually may be. Too many instruments or the wrong instruments pipe up with every flip of the conductor's baton. Actually, a different part of the brain takes the baton. The amygdala starts calling the shots instead of our prefrontal cortex. The amygdala was the command center of our evolutionarily early so-called reptilian brain, while the prefrontal cortex, our executive function, developed later. I don't like calling the amygdala a lizard instead of an executive, but you get the point. Uh, the amygdala is in control of life and death issues, and when the amygdala is not regulated, we spend our lives in fight or flight. Now, whether we've experienced trauma or not, anytime we sense danger, three divisions of our nervous system step up to help out. First, there's the ventral vagal complex, or VVC. The VVC looks around for help, making bids for social responses. 
The VVC is highly enervated in the throat and the face. So uh, we start vocalizing, smiling, looking expressively for help. I think of the VVC as the orchestra's strings and flutes. If danger persists, then the barrel drums, trumpets, and cymbals of our sympathetic nervous system, or SNS, sends out an SOS. The SNS takes up so much energy that the brain can't do very much else, like encode memories. This is one reason people remember traumatic experiences in bits and pieces instead of a flowing narrative form. If we cannot fend off or flee danger, the feeling of being trapped and disempowered is the hallmark of trauma. Sometimes our third level of safety system steps in. The parasympathetic nervous system, or PNS, makes us play possum. We freeze and collapse. The orchestra has just a deep hum of life from an oboe, maybe the pulse of a bass. Normally, the parasympathetic nervous system works in a less severe way. Let's say we escape danger. The PNS is the one that puts the brake on the alarm bells of the SNS, returning us to calm. The executive prefrontal cortex can take back the baton. Research has shown that any time the dysregulated brain can engage the PNS, what Norman Deutsch calls the signal-to-noise ratio improves. Players can pick up their instruments to call and respond efficiently and effectively again. In the normal course of development, children go repeatedly from a calm, regulated state to a dysregulated state and back with their caregiver's help. As I mentioned, neurologically, these repetitions build up those dendrites and I'm sure other connections, which equip the brain so we can chill ourselves out. After trauma, it's like the volume on the amygdala has been turned up, so it's harder to self-regulate. It's hard to trust your next call for help will be answered. And neurophysically, it's harder to return from states of fear, rage, or shutdown to feel safe and connected again. It takes repeated cycles of dysregulation and re-regulation to beef up those dendrites again, as well as our tolerance, so we can take a little longer before the amygdala grabs the baton. We learn how to stay sub-threshold again as we evaluate danger, and we get better at letting the PNS do its thing to relax us and lower our guard. Just as children need and let their parents uh, regulate them, we constantly tune into each other and even the natural world to regulate ourselves. And we use art. We seek contact with a presence that does something to us, neurophysically, emotionally, everything-y. We surely tune into others using our mirror neurons, which give us a palpable sense of another's mind, heart, and nervous system, but also we get regulated by direct sensation through our bodies. We see this when parents use soothing or excited tones and rhythms, deep eye contact, calming or quickening touch. We also see it when a player catches the tempo from a conductor's baton or on the dance floor when we pick up the beat. Neuroscientific research has shown that even the rhythm of our brain waves gets in sync. Body workers using the Feldenkrais technique have also observed that when one part of the body, say the hand, is in contact with the practitioner's hand and moves from tension to safety, there's a ripple effect and the rest of the client's body follows suit. It seems obvious that a wide range of sensory input can ripple this way through our bodies. For example, watching a pounding surf, or the wind in the trees, or the grace and torque of viewing sports or dance. 
The stimuli can be virtual. Many sensations are triggered even through the imagination. But live encounters face-to-face are different in meaningful ways when eye contact is possible with interactive response and even actual touch, not in my show, but often in clown or avant-garde performance. I asked the audience yesterday to imagine watching a film of the performance uh, with all other variables unchanged. Over half imagined they would lose a powerful sense of connection. When we are attuned in a relational exchange, I think that we even can experience what I call a hall of mirror neurons where call and response and response start to overlap and blend. It's hard to tell who had which feelings first. I think this happens all the time in love, and I feel it often also at the end of my play. I, um, yesterday in the performance, had just stepped down off the stage to stand closer to you, and I opened and closed my fist in a gesture that resembles a heartbeat. The guitar was going, Boom, 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 boom. It's uh, the cadence I've learned of calm breath with a shorter inhale that excites the SNS and a longer exhale that calms with the PNS. And as I make this gesture, I open a bit in trust. And I sense a shift in the room, in that magic in between. I theorize that you witness what I'm feeling translated through your mirror neurons and your own embodied response. And I wonder if you're opening a bit more. Picking up on that, it amplifies my own feeling. It opens me a bit more, which you surely experience in me, which amplifies what you feel, and so on and so on. We also see this hall of mirrors within the behavior of groups, including audiences. Skin breaks a few taboos, talking about sexual practice and sexual abuse, both of which can elicit shame. Just think back to high school and remember what it's like when shame or taboo come up in a social setting. You can feel the wave of reaction as people withdraw as a group. Yesterday, one respondent said that they experienced some shame and two felt embarrassed at points and about two in five said their awareness of the audience around them heightened at moments of discomfort. In skin, I go to great lengths to disarm, comfort, and reassure, as I said before, but as the survivors who experienced panic attacks have shown me, it's not necessarily counterproductive if shame does get triggered. Social psychologist Brene Brown has explored this and described the way shame can short-circuit our access to vulnerability yet shame is an inescapable part of living in culture. Cultivating shame resilience enhances the vulnerability we're capable of. At the risk of repeating myself, it's the goal for me that whatever shame or discomfort the audience feels by the end of the play, we arrive together at a place of safety, of vulnerability and authenticity. In his masterwork, The Body Keeps the Score, trauma researcher Basil van der Kolk says, Quote, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. The critical issue is reciprocity, being truly heard and seen by the people around us, feeling that we are held in someone else's mind and heart. For our physiology to calm down, heal, and grow, we need a visceral feeling of safety. 
I asked people yesterday what they felt in the final moments of skin. Responses included everyone led to a common place and intimate awareness and intense yet truthful and necessary, vulnerable slash important, welcome, at ease, alive. It seemed like you saw us as well. 83% of the audience said they felt more present with and or seen by me in the final moments. I crafted skin to offer more than a virtual experience, more than a call to action by example. I want that reciprocity. The play puts me through my own cycles of repetition to rebuild trust in the world, in you, and invite you to trust in me so we can beef up those dendrites and quiet our noisy brains, find the courage to be vulnerable, and practice the neural pathways that make it easier and quicker the next time we're frightened or hurt to find our way back to joy. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media. We are at Heal Me Too Fest. You'll hear it first when every new episode drops, including a podcast extra with excerpts from my show Skin and an episode with Sarah Jane Johnson and Patrice Miller, the writer, performer, and director, respectively, of the solo show Devil in a Box presented at the festival. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts or visit HealMeToPodcast.com.